Matthew chapter 1. In our lead up to Christmas, we've been in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, reveling in the prophecies of old as, as they relate to the Messiah who would, uh, who would bring a peace that the world could not fully fathom, a shalom that the world could only long for. We looked at God's limitless provision through that one special descendant of David. And then we looked at God's command for us to seek him. This is all from Isaiah chapter 55, how um, God is the, the one who provides all things, the one who would uh, bring about that leader that would uh, change the world. Today we're in Matthew chapter one, and our big idea is simply this, God wants us to experience the greatest gift. I invite you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter one, I'll begin reading in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that tells us uh, so many phenomenal, wonderful, sometimes unbelievable things about our Savior. Thank you that your word is true and we can believe that which seems unbelievable. Father, help us to hear from your word this morning. Help us to apply these truths to our lives that we might grow closer to you, that we might grow to be more like our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We know the Christmas story, right? We've been singing all month about the angels announcing the birth, The shepherds who heard the announcement of the angels and they go and see the child for themselves. We sing about the star. We sing about that unconventional resting place, that manger, the feeding trough that that Mary had available to her to place her son in. All of these things we find spelled out in the Bible. That's how we know it's the Christmas story. But we also sing about Silent Night in the cold winter's night that was so deep. That's not found in the Bible. If it was genuinely cold, the sheep probably wouldn't have been out in the fields. Scripture says as shepherds were watching their flocks by night. Uh, If it was cold, they wouldn't have been out in the fields. They would have been in a sheepfold or in some kind of shelter. 
Uh, we're not certain that it was winter. It's okay that we celebrate December 25th. That's okay that we set aside that day to remember the birth of our Savior, but it may not have been. That's okay. And what about the silent night? I'm sorry, but we know how babies come into the world, and it ain't silent. Okay? And, and the angels, suddenly there were with the shepherds a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. That was not quiet. <laughs> so on the one hand, yes, we know the Christmas story, but at the same time, the narrative, the storyline of the Bible has been added to in countless ways by tradition, sometimes by imagination. Oftentimes, we end up overlaying a context of understanding that would be completely foreign to first century Middle East villages. You know, filling in the blanks in the storyline and trying to picture the whole thing isn't the worst thing in the world that we can do. It's okay. Keep singing Silent Night. It's fine. But it becomes unhelpful when it draws us from the main point of Christmas. And I'm aware that today I'm preaching to the choir that you know the main point of Christmas, that you're worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior. Even though we, we have all these, these other family events and activities that are good and fine, we're keeping the, the main point of Christmas. I know I'm preaching to the choir. So today, um, I'm not trying to change your mind on anything. I just want to have us be refreshed and emboldened by the truth of Scripture that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. So I read uh, the, the passage in Matthew chapter 1, but really we're only going to be in verse 23 this morning. Uh, so uh, let's, let's look at that together. The first thing we see in Matthew 1, 23 is that God does the hopeful. And by that I mean he, he's fulfilling a hope-filled prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. At the beginning of the service, Robert read for us from Isaiah chapter 7, which says, which is a prophecy. It says this, the, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah wrote that seven or eight centuries prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. You may recall a couple weeks ago when we were in Isaiah 55, some of those hope-filled statements. Here's Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because God's chosen one is the provider, was the point of of that passage. And when he provides, he provides abundantly. Some uh, looked at that passage and wanted to see it as a, a utopian society that was fulfilled under the reign of King David. And, and if you recall from a couple weeks ago, it didn't take long to, to punch holes in that theory because David's reign may have been the greatest kingly reign in the, the nation of Israel. Really easily build the case that that is true. Um, it was far from perfect. It was far from the, uh, the true shalom, that true experience of peace that the Jewish people longed for. Uh, David's reign did not match it. There was still something better. I'm rehashing all of this to remind us of the longing that these messianic prophecies create. Along with 
the dissatisfaction that these prophecies create with the here and now. Surely what we have here isn't it, the Israelites would be saying, and you and I should be saying. This isn't it. Surely God means what he says. Unless I accidentally pretend to have any doubt, I don't doubt that God means what he says. That he will fulfill exactly what he promises to do. And praise him for that. Take a moment and think of some of the promises of God that are near to your heart. Maybe life is just hard and you're looking forward to heaven. Or maybe you're, uh, you're trying to, to build that relationship with God and, and you, you genuinely want to spend time in the word of God but you, your mind is, is struggling to, to comprehend it or, or your mind wanders and you just don't feel like you're growing the way you should grow. Some of us are missing loved ones this holiday season. Whatever it is, None of us are completely satisfied in this life, nor should we be. Because God promises more. He promises something greater in that next life. He is a trustworthy, truthful God who has all the power and integrity to do exactly what he says he's going to do. So when he says that there's going to be a time for his people when there is no need for anything, that God provides everything without cost to us, that's the thing that's going to happen. When he says that there's going to be this leader that will rule the nations with peace and justice and equity, it's going to happen. God wants us to experience his greatest gift while looking forward to the fulfillment of the rest of his promises. There are a variety of reasons why a gift might be considered great. You might receive a great gift because, and consider it great because it was was costly and you understand how much the person who gave it to you sacrificed to give that to you. A great gift might just simply be expensive or it might be rare. Or perhaps it has a unique origin. Uh, some of my favorite Christmas gifts are the ones that, that little children have made for me, my own children have made for me. They don't always have the greatest of quality, but the heart put into it, I love it. There are a variety of reasons why you might consider a gift great when we're talking about the gift of Jesus, the very specific nature of the prophecies regarding Jesus' life makes the gift of Jesus quite spectacular. It's part of the reason why the gift of Jesus is the greatest gift. It's because it was prophesied beforehand that God said it would happen this way, and then, guess what? It happened that way. God does the hopeful, he provides, he, he fulfills his promises. Secondly, God does the impossible. Same verse, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There is much controversy surrounding the virgin birth of Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us. 
Some of that controversy comes from the Hebrew word used in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It's been read twice from the pulpit already this morning. That word virgin in the Hebrew in the Old Testament does not directly translate, that Hebrew word does not directly translate to virgin, but actually to young woman. It can refer to a virgin, but it doesn't specifically mean virgin. It specifically means young woman. And, and that's true. It's true that that word can mean young woman. But what's also true is that you cannot deny the virgin birth of Jesus and be a Christian. Because to believe that Jesus is anything less than God is to reject the gospel message. And if Joseph were Jesus' biological father, then Jesus would have a sin nature and he would not be fully man and fully God. He would just be fully human like you and I. Now, you don't have to fully understand the virgin birth of Jesus in order to be saved, but you cannot deny it. That's why uh, we would look at certain religious groups who would claim to be Christian and say that they are not because they deny the virgin birth of Jesus. They de deny the deity of Jesus. So why then, if the word specifically means young girl or young woman in Isaiah, why then do all of our English translations use the word virgin? Why does the church, and it's not just Baptists, why does, why does the church understand the prophecy of Isaiah specifically to mean that Mary, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, would be a woman who had not known a man? Well, here's where Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and even the Catholics can agree. Right up until the Catholics diverge into calling Mary eternally a virgin or deity or something like that. But we can agree that, uh, that Mary indeed was a virgin when Jesus was conceived all the way through his birth. We also know through scripture that Jesus had siblings. So Mary did not remain a virgin. But two reasons for us to understand that the prophecy in Isaiah was of a miraculous conception despite the word being ambiguous. There's two reasons. Uh, and we go back to the translation that Jesus would have used in his lifetime. It's called the Septuagint. Have you heard of that? Some of you have. I've talked about it before, so you should all nod your heads, but I won't look. It's okay. The Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew into Greek. It was um, put together, it, it was, oh, I didn't write the word down. Commissioned, there it is. It was commissioned by an Egyptian king in the third century BC so that he could have the Hebrew Bible in the Greek language in his library. Can you imagine? kind of wealth that he had to, to be able to just say, you know what, I just want to hire 72 people to come and translate this ancient text so that I can read it in my own language. And that's exactly what happened. We call it the Septuagint because that's 70, that's rounding down from 72. But they, they chose six scholars from each of the tribes of Israel to come together and to translate the Hebrew Bible. Uh, they started with the Pentateuch, the first five books, into uh, the Greek language. 
And so, and, and then later they, they translated the rest of the Old Testament. So these 72 Jewish scholars understood that the prophecy of Isaiah did refer to a miraculous event. So when they translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, they chose the word virgin. Now, remember, this is two, three centuries before Jesus was born. So that means the prophecy had been still unfulfilled when they did this translation. So their, their translation choice was not based on a desire to make, make the t- text fit what they believed happened. No. The translation choice was based on a theological understanding that God was going to do the impossible. And so when they translated Isaiah chapter 7, they chose the word virgin. So Matthew, as Matthew is right, that's the first reason why we uh, recognize that, that Mary was foretold to be a virgin when Jesus was born. The second one is as Matthew is writing his gospel, so we're in Matthew chapter one, as he's writing his gospel and he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen, what translation does he use? He doesn't go back to the original Hebrew, he uses the Septuagint. And that's how it gets translated in, or that's how it gets written in the, the Greek manuscript of Matthew. Now, as Matthew is doing this, he's doing so by direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we, we understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God uh, to the point where as the authors were writing those manuscripts, they chose the exact words that God wanted them to put into those letters. So as Matthew is writing, he is choosing this word, not just because it's available to him in his translation of the Old Testament, it's because the Holy Spirit moved him to do so. So trace the history with me. Isaiah writes, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. He does so under the inspiration of the scriptures. God had Isaiah write these words. Centuries later, a team of theologians get together to translate it into Greek They use the specific term virgin, even though Isaiah used the ambiguous term of young woman. And then Matthew, under the inspiration of God, chooses the specific term virgin. Why? Because that's what it was. It was a miraculous event that a child could be born without a human father. So in other words, because Matthew and and Luke, both Matthew and Luke, the two Gospels, uh, use the specific term for virgin, we understand that the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament indeed intended to communicate that the Messiah would not have an earthly father. Why does this matter? Why does the virgin birth matter? Because scripture is clear how sin passes through the world. It started with Adam. And as the father of his children, his sin nature passed on to his children. And generation upon generation, through the fathers, the sin nature comes to where every one of us in here today, we are by nature sinners. We didn't have a choice. To be fair, there's many times we've chosen to sin anyway, so it's a choice we would have made. But we, by nature, are sinners. It's because of our fathers. Yet Jesus was born with no human father, and thus the curse of sin was bypassed in Jesus. God wants us to experience the greatest gift, knowing that that he gave it in the most impossible way. 
God's gift of Jesus is the greatest gift, as I said, because of the prophecies, but another reason, because of the impossible. Jesus, while being fully God, became fully human. Which leads to the next point. God does the hopeful, the impossible. God does the unthinkable. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. By the time Jesus had been born, mankind had been sinfully living on this earth for thousands of years. The curse that started in Genesis chapter three that caused God to stop walking face to face with Adam. Remember, when Adam was created, uh, he enjoyed God with us. It says that in the cool of, the scripture records that in the cool of the day, the Lord God would walk through the garden and, and converse with Adam and Eve. That was God with Adam and Eve. But that was broken because of sin. And for thousands of years, there was no God with us. But then Jesus came. Sin separated us from God. Started with Adam, it continues to today, but God came into the world. Jesus, who is God, came into the world to break the curse of sin. And Jesus is the only mediator who could do it. He's the only high priest he could do it. All, all the priests and the sacrifices, beginning in the book of Exodus, which we are going to get back into the book of Exodus in a couple weeks, and we will eventually get to those sacrifices. All those priests and sacrifices uh, were pictures pointing to the one true high priest. They all pointed to Jesus and the sacrifice that he made with his own body on the cross. Completely unfairly, by the way. He had never done anything to deserve death. We did. And he died for us. God with us is God's provision for the sacrifice which brings about peace. Peace with God. We're no longer enemies with God, but he calls us his children. When we come to him by faith, believing that Jesus has died for our sins, he calls us sons and daughters. The impact of God with us I worked really hard to hold back on my list because I was sitting there thinking of all the ways that, that God joining mankind changes our lives. Like, it's everything. God with us shows that he is a promise-keeping God. He foretold it centuries prior to doing it, which to us, I mean, my poor four-year-old, knowing that Christmas was coming, is tomorrow Christmas, is tomorrow Christmas, is tomorrow Christmas, we get to open our presents tomorrow, is tomorrow Christmas, for weeks. Can you imagine waiting centuries? That's what the people of Israel did. And then most of them missed it when it happened. God with us shows that he is a promise-keeping God. God with us demonstrates that he loves us. He would have been absolutely right and correct when Adam sinned to say, you know what, this was a bad idea. 
I'm done. No more humans. Or maybe he could tolerate Adam and Eve, but remember when it got to time to be Noah, sin was so rampant on the earth that God was going to destroy all of them. The only ones who were, uh, were righteous in God's eyes were either really old and ended up dying before the flood, or it was Noah and his family. That's it. We're going to see in the book of Exodus as God has chosen a people for himself and they go out and they begin sinning and God gets angry with them and says, you know what, I'm just going to kill them all and Moses, I'm going to restart with you. He says those things because he's holy. He can't be with sin. But yet he's a loving God and he demonstrated that by sending Jesus. God with us gives us boldness to live rightly in a perverse world. It's much easier to just go with the flow, isn't it? Live like your culture, live like your neighbors, live like your coworkers. It's something different to live for the Lord. Knowing that God has sent Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us, to, uh, to walk among human beings, to be tempted and tried the same ways that we are tempted and tested, and yet to go through all of that without sin. That should embolden us to live lives that are pleasing to God. God with us provides us the best message, the best story to tell people. Why, why don't we? Actually, I know we do from time to time. And I, on the one hand, a cultural Christianity that kind of gives a nod to Christ at Christmas time can be unhelpful, but in a very real way, it can be very helpful because people are open to hearing about why Christmas is special and it's not the sales at the stores. And it's not the gifts and the get-togethers or the decorations as much fun as all that is. The greatest gift is God with us. God with us means that I have not been left to my own strength. Because Jesus has come, because of that first advent, he came and he lived a perfect life and he died the death that I deserved and I've received his salvation by faith. He then gives me the spirit so that I can live in his strength. I've not been abandoned to live life by my own strength and praise the Lord for that because we would all fail. Yes, those five application statements were all me holding back. Spend some time this afternoon and come up with impacts, reasons why God with us changes how we live. My question for you this morning is, are you living out a God with us mentality? Is your heart and mind filled with the goodness of God that, that he would send his only son for you?
We are so distractible as human beings, aren't we? We're distracted by current events. We're distracted by, um, by close events, by national world events. Uh, we, we have added stressors this time of year. Uh, being with family is great, but being with family too long is sometimes less than great. We have all these things that will pull our hearts and mind away from a God with us mentality. So rather than letting that be true, let's keep praising God for keeping his word by prophesying the gift of the Messiah, by doing the impossible, the miraculous. Jesus came and lived the fulfillment of Emmanuel. He was God with us for about 32 years, give or take. The next time he comes, the second advent, scripture tells us that God with us will be here for a thousand years and then eternity. So we'll just round it to eternity. Forever and ever. He will be God with us. And just as his promise of the first advent was prophesied and took seemingly forever to happen, it only took centuries, his prophecy for the second advent, granted is taking millennia, that's okay, it will happen. Let's praise him for it. Father, help us to live in light of the advent of Jesus Christ, the, the first and the second, reveling in the glory that God would send the Son Jesus Christ, to be the Messiah, to be our high priest, to be our sacrifice, to be our propitiation that we might have our, our lives made right with you, to be our reconciler. Lord, thank you for the greatest gift at that first advent. Help us to keep in mind the promises and assurances of the second that when he comes again, he will come to rule and reign. Lord, help us to look forward to that day. Help us to be people who, uh, who, who love you so much that we can't help but talk about you. Help us to be people who love you so much that we can't help but live the way that you want us to live. Father, we're imperfect. We're going to be imperfect. Help us to recognize sin, confess it, turn from it. Help us to help others do the same. Father, thank you for the greatest gift of Jesus who lived and died for us. Help us to live and die for you in Jesus' name.